welcome to Flop Pod. I'm Lynn Panting, and this week I'm chatting with Danielle Irvine. Originally, our interview was supposed to be part of the COVID-19 in the arts industry series, and it is. But this interview runs the gamut, so I hope you enjoy it. Danielle talks about taking, you know, this time to pause and consider how we're working and how we're finding our work and life balance. And that has really resonated with me this week. Um, Last week, I had to cancel a few of my classes because I had a head cold. Ordinarily, that wouldn't be an issue, but because of the times we're living in and you want to model correct behavior and you want to make sure everyone is safe, I canceled my classes and I stayed home. Um, And it really made me evaluate how I linked my own self-worth to the work that I was doing. Um, I had a cousin pass away very tragically a couple of years ago. And I remember that I had started a new job. And so after I read at his funeral, instead of going to the wake with my family, I went to work. I think it's important to keep in mind that I'm a dance teacher, not a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon, or even if I was, it doesn't really matter. Um, I think about that now um, and I hope that my priorities have shifted. Um, I hope that my ambition has lessened uh, and I hope that I have more balance. I also hope that you love this interview with Danielle as much as I do. Enjoy. I'm here with Danielle Irvine. Danielle Irvine is a director, producer, and the artistic director of Perchance Theater at Cupid's. She's also a soul sister, mentor, hug giver, and so much more. Welcome, Danielle. Hi, Lynn. Thanks for having me. Oh, I am so delighted. I'm wondering if you can tell the audience a little bit more about Perchance Theater. Uh, Perchance Theater uh, at Cupid's is the province's only professional classical theater company. It focuses on um, me using my um, connections and networking off the island to bring as many skills and tools here to uh, invest in the artists in this province and in our audiences and show them, you know, big. Um, epic stories told using um, the best techniques that we can draw down on. And uh, so we do Shakespeare, we do Moliere, we do Goldoni, uh, we do all kinds of fun stuff, and we do new Newfoundland and Labrador classics like Paul David Powers' Crippled and Megan Gale Cole's um, Our Eliza. So we're trying to kind of put a spotlight on stories that we think will stand the test of time and really shake and move us um, as Newfoundland Labradorians as well. What does a regular season look like for you? A regular season, we would um, bring our whole company together for 11 weeks. We would do five and a half in rehearsal and five and a half uh, in performance out in Cupid's Newfoundland, about an hour outside St. John's. And uh, we have 25 people in the company. We will rotate uh, our two big classics and our new Newfoundland classic, which is usually a three-hander, but that's just happened to be that the past couple of years. And then we also run a series called the Open Sky Series. So we'll have musicians and circus performers and uh, um, opera singers come in uh, once, once a week, stand-up comedians. Uh, we've been blessed with 
uh, incredible uh, guests as well. And um, yeah, and so people will come out to Cupid's and sit in the theater that was uh, built for the Cupid 400 celebrations by Aidan Flynn, Brad Hodder, and Jeff Adams, the founding members. Uh, at that time, it was called New World Theater Project. And um, this theater is based um, on the Globe in London and the ship that the settlers built when they first kind of started building their community here on the island. And so it's outdoor theater um, and we embrace that and we are uh, doing our best to be as environmentally responsible and, you know, have as low an impact as we can, even though our audience and our cast and crew do do a lot of driving. Uh, everything else we are at this point trying to figure out how to do very responsibly and embracing being outdoors in Newfoundland. Sometimes beautiful, sometimes cold and wet and windy and full of flies. <laughs> Um, so when <clears throat> everything came down uh, the pipe and we were basically shut down as a, a province, how did you go about um, your decision making? And the reason why I asked this question is one of the images that really stood out uh, to me when we got our first round of guidelines for theatrical practice and performance, uh, community gatherings, um, was a picture of your outdoor stage, which is conceivably one of the more safe venues um, because of the ventilation and just kind of how you would have to seat your patrons in order to follow all guidelines. And you had, um, I'll try and link to the, to the photo <laughs> here. Um, and it was cushions in the place, like these beautiful colored cushions, but you could really see um, the, the sparsity of um, what you would have to do in order to properly physically uh, distance people. So I'm wondering if you can talk about um, the pandemic from your perspective as the artistic director. Well, the very first thing, uh, I mean, I was literally about to fly to Montreal to direct the play at the National Theatre School when all this happened. And I was like, whoa, um, within days of hitting, you know, uh, hitting the ground there. So uh, first, my first reaction was to write them and go, I can direct the project on Zoom. And they were like, absolutely. And so then I started noodling on what this could be for the season. I was like, oh, well then, like we could go ahead this summer, we could do, offer every day at two o'clock, there's a performance on Zoom. And I was really picturing that. And then I got about a week into rehearsals on Zoom and went, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm really glad I did it with the National and I learned a lot from it. But I, I found that a real um, exercise and frustration about connection and storytelling. And, um, and as a result, I mean, I haven't watched much on, online because I spend all my day on my computer fretting. But the last thing I want to do is spend a whole lot, two hours on my computer watching something that should be in live. And it just aches my heart more and more. It just ramps up my anxiety. Um, and so I was uh, very distressed. And then I started going, okay, well, if we can open or do anything, uh, what is it that we can do that really, I went right back to the heart of what the company does and the company does outdoor Shakespeare. And we have been doing a project for the past five or six years now. We do Shakespeare in the garden and it's been at the Bum Botanical Gardens. It's been a beautiful private gardens where I have actors hidden around and the audience goes on kind of a choose your own adventure and gets to experience one-on-one -on -one monologues. And I thought to myself, well, what if we do that, but a 
kind of exploded across the entire island. And um, the actors could be using selfie sticks and, you know, and keep it very, very safe and it becomes a way to go forward because when um, we were told, you know, originally we did, we had no idea when we could open. And then once things started to kind of, they start, then they said, came to us in May and said, you definitely can't open. And then in June, it's like, okay, you can open, but you're only allowed to have X number of people, but they have to be six feet apart. We went out and we did the bubble seating at six feet apart. And at that point, it hadn't come out and said, and it must be 12 feet from the actors. So we just did six feet apart and six feet from the actors. And our capacity went from 136 to 30. Now, if we had to redo that for the 12 foot radius from the actors, we might get 20 people in that theater. So even though it's an outdoor venue, um, 20 people for a classical season the size of ours is just not financially feasible. And also, how do I keep my actors safe? You know, it's one thing to keep the audience safe. You can put up glass barriers, but love the actors need to be seen and need to work together and, and the cast and crew. So I was um, deeply concerned. And I know certain, I know other people went ahead and that's really brave and exciting. I was too afraid. I, I was like too afraid to try even try anything in public where if anybody gets sick, you know, I was too scared. So I, I kept going down this path with the idea of the power of one and and taking our Shakespeare in the Garden and, and expanding it across the province. So I kind of, it took me a while to find the right department. And I was kind of, you know, going around saying it out loud to people. Finally, I said it out loud to the right person. I went, oh, you got to bring it to this department. And, and I put in a grant and then it took a long time to work its way through as it does. And by the time it kind of came out the other end, um, I had originally put in that we would do the whole thing in 10 weeks and then it became, well, now it's the end of the summer. So why don't we just breathe and do this across the whole province and, and all seasons, right? So let's, let's show Newfoundland in winter. Let's show Newfoundland when the icebergs come in. Let's, so, so I'm just kind of breathing and we're, we are trying to get 80% of them done before winter really takes its grip. And so then the last few that are winter and spring uh, and into next summer, we can do as targets of opportunity. We're not like we have to get it done by a certain date. You know, we have enough in the can to, so we have 14 in the, in the can right now. And, oh, Lynn, it's been such a joy <laughs> to, to just get to actually work. We work on Zoom, you know, and the actors are so delighted to be working. I'm so delighted to be working. It is you know, way outside my comfort zone because we're working in film. Like we have Jamie Skidmore and Tom Cochran who are directors of photography and Jamie's our editor. And, and I'm outside my comfort zone because suddenly instead of just directing monologues for theater, now I'm like, oh, these are actually 40 short films. Oh, suddenly, wow, comfort zone, way outside. Um, but um, everybody is just so excited to be working. And it was crazy. And, there's, and I'm, I'm working with 40 people. That sounds like a lot and it is a lot for my brain but it's the tip of the iceberg for the talent in this province. So, you know, I'm hoping that if, if worse comes to worse, I can just keep rolling this and rolling this and, and just because there's so many, you know, when you think about 40s, nothing, you know, in terms of the amount of performers in this province, province, right? It's like, and, uh, and so, you know, really, you know, people who I've collaborated with a lot aren't in the 40 and it's like, it's not because you're not amazing. <laughs> just trying to make sure I have this wide, and as broad of a of a group as I can, right? So, yeah, and I, I've just been grateful for this project, 
but it's been hard. It's been, it's, you know, you look at that empty theater and you go look at the potential here. And so that's why the very first monologue in Power of One is Greg and you can hear him. Like he opens the door and I just, you know, he takes a big breath. And then he just looks around the empty theater and that's, and that's where this whole project came from. It came from that ache, right? That ache of who knows when we're going to be together again. And uh, yeah. Oh, Danielle. I know. <laughs> oh, I know. <clears throat> Everyone is doing the very best that they can. And there is a real uh, need for a connection. And I have a couple of questions. Well, I have thousands of questions relating to what you just <laughs> said. But I'm wondering if you could um, speak to, um, you said that directing kind of like a, a multi-actor uh, piece as opposed to a one-on-one -on -one, like you're doing in The Power of One over Zoom is an exercise in frustration because oh. you're you're losing, I, I would imagine you're losing timing. Um, there's a, I love bodies in a room. That might be a drinking game for this podcast. I say it at least once <laughs> a podcast. Um, but it's really, that's really important to my practice. So I, I, I can relate, but I'm wondering if you could expand on, um, it's great. We have something, uh, kudos to those that are really involved and, and are adapting. Um, so absolutely. But if you could expand on your particular frustration, that would be great. Yeah, I absolutely applaud everybody who's engaged with it and having success with it. And it's just, and everybody's process is different. For me, the process was uh, aching, like it ached me doing it. I'm so used to being in a room um, with a person and, um, you know, I listen with my whole instrument, my whole body when I'm uh, working with my performers and, and, giving direction from that place and when i can only see you know this little snapshot on the screen i can't i don't feel like i'm relating and giving them the best support in terms of direction it was great for for workshopping a text it's great for discussion about you know intellectual discussion but when people are trying to be in a scene together and i'm trying to be in it with them myself and they can't see each other there's no eye contact they're not they can't hear each other quite the same um we kept running into, uh, it's, it's very different to make actual eye contact with a person and another to look at, you know, a green dot on your computer and tell yourself you're looking at someone when really it's a green dot on a computer and, um, and feeling when you're seeing into the other person's eyes, the effect of your words and how it changes your performance. And so that, that was uh, frustrating all of us and then not being able to quite hear. And then of course, there's always the stuff around, you know, because the person is so small on the screen, you, you, your body believes they're far away. So you start yelling. <laughs> it's like, you don't need to yell. The computer is actually super close, but like, you know, um, how do you do? Well, you know, we, we did have a lot of fun. Like we, you know, the actors were so fabulous that, you know, they dove into their closets, came out with all kinds of stuff. You know, the designers built backgrounds for the screen. We did, you know, we had a blast and I'm really glad we did it. But um, it's not, I mean, theater is about the live experience and it's about, it's a live experience between the actors and between the actor and the audience and the audience feeling their own engagement with the story you know 
the actors can hear them when they laugh. The actors can hear them when they take a breath in anticipation of something. And the story happens in that moment between them. And when, when that live connection isn't there, it's, it's a different experience. So, so I thought for building power of one, it's like, okay, let's just reduce right down to the core of what we can do and do well. And those became monologues because a monologue you can do direct address and, um, and the audience will feel like they're getting a direct experience. And even though it's not a, like we're not ex literally exchanging breath, we, um, it's as close as we can get to that. And because um, I think that's, it's, it's, it's an important part. And I don't always know if the eyes realize as to how much an important part they are. They are, they are the last character that's got added to a play, right? <laughs> so anyway, yeah. I don't know if I answered that, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you absolutely answered that. And for anyone that's not been in uh, a room with Danielle as a director, um, <clears throat> she's very much a, a mover. So as the scene is happening, uh, she's uh, traveling and walking and she'll never sit in the same, uh, if you're in the theater, she'll never sit in the same chair twice, just so she can kind of see the piece from all angles. And um, it's almost like a, when I watch you direct, it's like a dance between you and the actors. I can see the, I can see you reacting to what is happening. Uh, so I can appreciate kind of like it's, you know, people that don't do so well in a traditional school setting because you're kind of stuck and you have to sit at your desk and you're not allowed to move uh, like many creative people are. Uh, I think this Zoom experience is a little bit of a flashback to that institutionalized kind of um, rubric and rules and it squares down to totally. even your visual. Um, so I, I, I can see creatives naturally uh, rebelling against that format too. 100%. And, I, and thank you for articulating that way because it's true. And I think it's because like, I do walk all around and I can't see what's happening and I can't be in the moment. Like I, I do, I li like I have a sit-stand desk here. I got diagnosed last year with ADD and it was this massive surprise to myself that now in retrospect, I'm like, how, did <laughs> how is this a surprise? <laughs> but anyway, it's not a surprise to anybody who knows me apparently. Even when I tell them like, well, of course, I'm like, mm. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, I just need to be, that's how I, I listen with my whole body for the authenticity of the performance. And if I don't believe the actor, I listen to my body and I ask why, and then I'm able to kind of give that direction from that place. But when I'm only just relying on my, my eyes and this little tiny square of an actor, it's hard to be able to articulate what it is that I don't believe. And I don't know, anyway, that's kind of where I am landing a little bit. So. Yeah. This is wildly off topic. Who is your favorite uh, screen actor? Who are you attracted mm. to as a director? Whose performances? Uh, because I, I think you might be looking for something a little bit different than uh, a, a regular audience member. Is there an actor that stands out to you? Oh my goodness, so many. And they're all theater actors. Isn't that amazing? Uh, like, um, so, uh, Oh my goodness, my brain just uh, dropped the name. But um, uh, Maggie Smith, Dame Maggie Smith. I cannot, Dame Judi Dench. I cannot not watch them. Like, especially when you, you watch Downton Abbey. It's like, I mean, I love everybody in Downton Abbey, but when she's on the screen, it's like, everybody else get out of the way. Let me just watch her. You know, um, Ian McKellen, 
obviously. Uh, Tom Hiddleston, right? When, yeah, th these actors, and they do, they all come from theater backgrounds, which is so funny because so, you know, very often I hear producers and filmmakers label acting as theatrical. And I'm like, no, no, that's not theatrical. That's just an actor who doesn't know how to work with a camera. That's not theatrical. Like, because theatrical acting is actually just as authentic and just as nuanced. There's just a few other diff few different tools in the toolbox. And um, yeah, like I, I'm just riveted, but yeah, Maggie Smith and Judy Dench and Helen Mirren and <laughs> bring it, bring it. <laughs> yeah. All of those absolutely make sense to me. And I wonder if there's also something um, in the British School of Theater where you're doing a lot of rep, you're playing yeah. a lot of different parts. You could be the romantic lead one week um, and then you're doing the comedy side of things. So you're not kind of narrowed into a, a particular role or lane yeah. or look. Uh, yeah. You're kind of uh, forced to uh, paint with all, all the colors. I wonder if there's something to that as well. I think there must be. And you know, Bill Nye, another example, right? You know, you watch him go from like this ridiculous drugged out aging rock star in Love Actually, and then become these like cold politicians in other movies. And he's 100% believable in all of them. And I think it is, it's this, this the, the Brit actors are, uh, they're not following the Hollywood of who's, you know, they have to be a certain height and size and blah, 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 blah. It's like the best actor. For this role and they're all authentic and and uh nuanced and if they can handle a stage they can handle a screen right if you can captivate somebody live and make them believe what you're saying live in the moment then of course you're gonna be able to do that on a camera i wonder then that if that translates uh to newfoundland theater actors as well because there's a little bit of a smaller Cool. Um, and because, I mean, there's more art than people here, um, <laughs> there is a wealth of opportunity that if you were maybe in a larger center, if you were in a Montreal or a, a Toronto, um, you might not have the opportunity to play the same roles. You, there might be some restrictions on uh, look type uh but here you kind of like it's a smaller pool of actors and you just have more opportunity yeah i think that's absolutely true i think the arts community here and for me as a director is the same way um it's always been all hands to the pump right it's always been you know what from my earliest days as a student at memorial it's like you want you know dick Bueller would say if you want to do something just do it and I was amazed then because by the time I had got to theater school in 94, I'd already directed 11 productions. And they were like, what? Like the other students, of course, said none of them had anywhere close to that. And I'm like, well, you just do it, don't you? But that's, that's our culture here. We all just do it. We don't worry about, you know, I don't have $50,000, so I'm not gonna do it. It's like, no, I'm just gonna do it. I'll find a way to do it. Um, and so that benefits all artists, the actors, directors, writers, we all just, if we want to do it we just do it and as long as we have our um cohort of people that we connect with who help us get you know that we connect with and we throw ideas around with then those ideas just rise and then they they come alive and you know shakes by sea and Dick, dick's kids and you know rca and mummer's troop and you know tnl like they all arose out of that energy of let's just do it I'm wondering how you are choosing the pieces uh, that you're doing in The Power of One. 
that is such a great question. Um, so this was a, what I did is I actually started by building the 40 performers. So, I mean, I've been a casting director for 11 years, so I have auditioned people all over the place. And I also go see before when I could, I went and saw everything. Like I, you know, I saw as many shows as I could physically see. Um, and so I'm very familiar with who's out there. And, and so I built the 40 to be represent as much as I could a pretty good snapshot of the province. And, and they're not all uh, acting either. Some are singing. And, and I think we've, we've already seen one go live that's, a sing that's singing. And then um, myself and Michael Nolan uh, went through because I hired him to be my text consultant because he's a professor of Shakespeare at Munn and somebody who I can go, okay, I need for this actor, I need a monologue, like a character who's like this. And then we'll throw ideas back and forth because there's three plays that I had never even read. Like I hadn't read Edward III until this project. I hadn't read Cymbeline until this project. And I hadn't read Tortoise and Cressida. So there were three that were like I needed to get up on. Um, and so it's somebody who I could throw ideas with. And then it became, you know, so then I, so everybody got a monologue and that took a week. And then I started working with the actors. And then in conversation, I went, wait now, you actually don't have to do just this monologue. This whole play is now yours. So then all of a sudden, then it started like swinging a little bit. So then we got really creative. And so sometimes it was like, I, for example, like I would choose, like for Didi, for example, who's now hers is live. So I feel like I could talk about, I'm trying to play secrets with all this, but uh, with Didi, originally we picked this really cool monologue where this woman wakes up next to a headless dead body. And I was like, that'll be cool. Like, that'll be cool. Then I started filming them and I realized, you know, because we're trying to tell the story of the actor, the power of words and the beauty of the location, that monologue would then become about the headless dead body and not about the actor or the location. And it would just steal focus. So then I went back to the overnight in my bed, fretting drawing room <laughs> and was like, think, 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 think. And I was like, wait, there's a beautiful song in Cymbeline, a dirge. And so then I went back to Dee, Dee who had already started learning her monologue. And I said, Dee, Dee I want to pitch this idea to you. And she's like, Danielle, I've already started learning the monologue. I'm like, I know, I get it. And thank you. But just bear with me. I said, I think if we do this dirge and we have you be a mom and we put you at a grave site in a resettled community, then we're, we're doing Cymbeline and we're still bringing this and celebrating Newfoundland history. And so I started reading it out and she started reciting it with me. And I'm like, how are you doing that? And she's like, I don't know how I know that. And then she went, wait a minute. She said, my mom used to read that out to me. And I was like, oh my goodness. And then I said, uh, then I got her to read it and we were both bawling. Uh, and then I said, do you know anybody personally who has a connection to the graveyard? Because um, we talked about which, which was a settled community close to Cowhead. She's in Cowhead. And she said, well, actually right on the head of Cowhead, there is, there was a community that got resettled. And, um, uh, that is Cowhead because it just it moved and she said uh, Adrian Payne has a younger brother who was buried there years and years and years ago as a, as a child and I was like oh my god Adrian Payne he like I've lived in his house like he's a big supporter of the Grossmore Theatre Festival he's a big supporter of all the artists who come through there he stays in touch with me on Facebook he's like the kindest person and uh, so Dee Dee talked to him and he was um, 
very pleased for us to to showcase his brother's grave in there. And so then we're all bawling. <laughs> and that and that's how it can, it comes about, you know, and I have these conversations with the actors and I think about the locations and or sometimes I'll hear the actors speak the monologue out loud and then I go, you know, this location needs to be here. And so some of the team are keep pushing me for answers as to where everything's going to be. And I'm like, I don't know yet. Like, I don't know until I talk to the actor. But um, in other cases, it's, you know, it's like, well, I know I picked this for a strong female, but I think you, the way I hear your voice, I think you could do this male monologue and it would be really super exciting. And so that's also happening. Um, yeah. And so it's kind of, it, it's, I don't know, it's like dousing or, you know, we're just kind of going over it until we find, there's a sweet spot, you know? <laughs> and so it's taking the time it takes. It's moving on one hand quite slowly and the other hand quite quickly. Um, but it's really fun. And uh, reciprocal. Yeah. 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 yeah it, I think the actors are having fun and they're full of ideas and they're coming to me and they're saying, how about, and, you know, and then getting excited and, yeah, and brave. Like, and some of them who I knew were in bubbles, I was like, okay, I want to set up an away mission and I want to go to, you know, Central. And so would you two be up for an away mission to Central? And the actor's like, sure. <laughs> you know, and then we do it all bubbled. We have the, you know, everybody's in whatever car and whatever bubble and we go and we, and so, yeah, there's a lot of sense of adventure in it. And fun and yeah. It's a conversation. And so it, it, the kind of the creativity of the decisions arise out of the space we give it for there to be a moment for it to arise, right? Yeah. But it's about staying, in, it's, forgive this language, it comes from clown. It's about staying in the shit. Like when something is not working, you stay in it. Don't try to get out of it. Stay in it until the new idea arises. And so with, with Cymbeline, like I was like, oh my God, I felt really stuck. And I was, you know, instead of panicking, I was just like, okay, just breathe and think and let, let it turn over, let it turn over. And then eventually the right idea came out. The same with um, the whole idea of the power of one, right? Instead of rushing and kind of forcing ahead with the idea of like, we'll do a two o'clock show on Zoom and a four o'clock show. I just like breathe, stay in this, stay in the truth of where we are. This is where we are what else is in here and uh yeah and that and that's interesting because that and whenever you know the idea of a flop like i've had a lot of flops we all can't be here without having flopped right and flops are scary and it means stuff has gone wrong and in this case you know the whole industry has flopped um but staying in it and breathing in it, sometimes really good stuff comes out of it. Learning comes out of it. New ideas, you know, like when you have a fire and it burns a forest, the new growth comes up. Um, I had a really uh, crazy experience because there's also, what does it mean? Like, what is a flop really? Like I was in, um, in 2000, I was a very young director and I was invited into the World Stage Festival's masterclass for directing. And it was all hush hush. And because I was up there for an award and they were like, we're gonna put you in this freebie class. If you can find a place to stay and take care of your own food, do you wanna be in this class with Peter Brook? And I was like, Peter Brook, yes. So it was all these international directors, but Peter Brook 
is the greatest living director in the world, you know, some would say. And, and so I was in this class uh, and I'm the youngest there and all these very established, amazing directors from across Canada and me, this young female director coming up out of Newfoundland. And we got to this exercise with Peter and he gave us all this sheet of paper that was in ancient Greek. And he said, okay, I want you to get another actor, get another director up and direct them. And I want to see how you direct. And it's ancient Greek, so none of us know what we're doing. And I, just by fluke, happened to go first. So I just did what I do, which is, you know, I got the actor up and I was, they were speaking and I was listening and I was like, okay, can you try it like this? And, okay, can you hear that rhythm? There's like a staccato in there. Can we play around with that? And after about 20 minutes, we got maybe three quarters of the way down the page, not even, you're not very far. And then he's like, okay, thank you. And we sat down. So, okay, you got the next two up. And the other director went, okay, you're in an amphitheater. There's 2,000 people. You need to convince them of this, 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 and this. Go. Boom. And it was an instant scene and it was electrifying. And I, Lynn, I was dying of embarrassment, like just dying of embarrassment, like sitting there with all these top directors across Canada. And I'm like, tears in my eyes. And, uh, then Peter goes at the end, he said, he let them go for like 10 minutes and he stopped and he said, okay, who here do you think was the more successful director? Everybody picked the other person. Of course, of course, like you would. And I'm like, tears and red and dying. And then he goes, well, actually I thought Danielle was. And everybody was like, what? And he goes, and people started getting angry and challenging him. And he said, well, because she wasn't deciding what was there. She was looking for what was there. She was curious and creating space. And uh, it created this huge debate because people are like, well, in Canada, we have to move really fast. We have to make decisions really fast. We have to go, go, go. You know, and he's like, why? This is your industry. You set the pace. You know, and it was great because it created this huge debate you know, kind of about our industry. But for me, like if I had gone second, I would have tried to do what the other lady had done, right? Because it was clearly like a really good idea. <laughs> and I was like, oh, but just left my own devices. I flopped, but I didn't. So what is a flop? Well, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, if you do everything right it just bolsters the ego and that really does nothing um the only way to grow is to be uncomfortable or to stay yeah. in the shit as you yeah. say and also i don't want to hear the story about how great you are that's not very no. interesting to me or or relatable uh i want to get into um <clears throat> what was silly or foolish or oh man what a bad time it's the it's why shakespeare is still it's so, so still relevant uh, because of, of the tragedy um, of, of the story, 100%. Um, and I wonder about your practice, uh, Danielle, because we've worked together a, uh, quite a bit over the years. And yeah. um, I do consider you one of my mentors. And I try to model my room after yours, um, which is not a top-down approach and I see in that room that you're describing all the other directors were recognizing a kind of patriarchal model that they had mm -hmm. grown up to a capitalist model we need to mm -hmm. move fast we need to do the thing it's my job to tell the actor what to do I'm going to move yeah. this you know piece of chess on the chessboard um, yeah. whereas when I'm in 
a room with you, I feel like it's a very collaborative process. And everything that you've described about the power of one, or even your frustration with Zoom directing, I think speaks to that. Whereas there's a reciprocity, yeah. um, there's a, it, it's cyclical, there's a loop, um, and everyone is coming to a round table uh, yeah. with, with a part to play. Because I do think being an actor is quite vulnerable, and there's a lot of ego attached to that. And really, I don't know anyone that doesn't just want to be good. Of course. Everyone just wants to be good and do a good job, and no one likes to look foolish. Um, and uh, I think that is the difficulty. And in your room, uh, what I see is there's uh, everyone has a, a voice. Mm -hmm. You are certainly the leader of the room and you organize the room. It's not cha chaotic in any kind of a way. But what I see in your description is everyone recognizing the old model and maybe mm -hmm. being uh, a little bit afraid of, oh, but what if the actor takes it in a different direction? I'm the yeah. director. Yeah. A hundred percent. I am a hundred percent engaged with my actor they have a job to do i have a job to do my job is to help them be the best they can be within the context of the big vision that i have also set which is so there's a big vision at play but i am not the expert in the the only expert in the room like liam when we work together on midsummer night's dream it's like this is what i'm feeling and then you were like how about this and this and this I'm like yes that is like, <laughs> because i don't speak the language of dance but you do Right. And it's like, come to the table. It's like, I, you know, I have, I feel like it's like, I have, you know, a spider sense about something, but then the professional actor, the professional choreographer, the professional lighting designer, sound designer, they come in and they go, okay, well, within that, within that, you know, shell that you're, you're creating, this is what I would offer. I'm like, awesome. And then if it doesn't feel right, if I'm listening and I'm like, mm, my spider sense is tingling, I'm able to kind of articulate back. And then we find the place together because uh, I, it's, it's something that should arise between people, I think. Just like the theater experience, then when you bring the audience in, it arises then between the actor, uh, the cast, the crew, the, the whole, the performance and the audience. And that's where, that's where it lives. And that's why it's frustrating. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not the smartest person in the room, but my job is to create a container. And then within that container, let's all play. What excites you about a project? Um, the possibility, like who knows where it's going to go. Uh, you know, I've been criticized on that by people in the past who kind of want an answer. I'm like, I don't want an answer yet. I'm on a, I'm on a journey of discovery. Like we don't need to answer that yet. We've got weeks ahead of us. Let's see what's underneath. Let's keep turning over the soil. And so it's like detective work and I love it. Like I love digging into a classical text like Shakespeare because I love, I love decoding the language. I love really getting in and playing with the big ideas and um, debating those ideas through theater. And uh, yeah, I love the journey. Who knows? I'd be in rehearsal 24 seven. I'm like, once the play is up in front of an audience, then, then it's like, then my work is done. I'm like, okay, now next show, <laughs> next journey. <laughs> Although there's still something that happens over the course of a summer too. You know, I'll watch the show grow and change as the actors and the audience relate, you know, and they get jokes in certain places or breaths in certain places. And yeah. 
I think you've already spoken to this, um, but I'll ask the question more specifically. Um, of course, the pandemic has given us all time to pause um, and reflect and maybe uh, think about our priorities and what's important to us. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you've gleaned from this time. Yeah, I did a, a lot of thinking about how much I do work, which is a lot, and how my personal relationships over the past years have fallen behind perchance, like perchance has taken up a lot of space. So over the pandemic, I consciously tried to reshape that a little bit differently so that my personal life had a bit more space and my professional life came a little bit more into balance in like a nine to five kind of way. And uh, that was hard and healthy. Um, but now that I'm back in production, I can feel it slipping again. I'm trying to reground myself. But, um, you know, I learned how to cook over the pandemic. <laughs> like I'm cooking all the time. I take a picture and send to my friends. They're like, oh my goodness. I'm like, I know, I'm, who am I? <laughs> I have a garden going out back. I'm not very good at it, mind you. But there are the occasional parsnip happening out in my backyard as, as we speak. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm trying to slow down and just breathe and um, keep a healthier work-life balance because I think that the pandemic really showed that. But it is a bit harder once production ramps up. Part of it is just the joy of the work, right? Like we love our work. You know, when you're in the theater for two weeks, you know, uh, working on divas, like the thrill of the long days is, is much more powerful than the, oh my God, it's a long day. It's like, oh my God, we're doing this stuff, right? And that's it. It's like, so much to think about. I don't want to not think about it <laughs> with power of one, right? So yeah, I think being an artist is, it's, um, it's, it's, it's an engine inside you. Right. And it's it drives you. So it's it's not like I go to work from nine to five and I turn it off. It's like it's still going. The engine's going like I'm lying in bed awake night and it's like I'm still creating. So it's a bit hard to figure out balance in that. It's your motor. Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Danielle. Thank you for having me, Lynn. It's so good to see you. It's so good to see you. <laughs>